Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to theloupperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. You'll get to listen to my podcasts and watch my sketch comedy videos before I release them to the rest of the world. You also have access to exclusive content for members only. And if you're looking for another way you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Just head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde CBD. Head over to palomaverdecbd.com and use promo code Lou for 25% off purchases over $75. All right, here we go. I am very happy to be joined by the president of the Libertas Institute and the author of The Tuttle Twins, as well as The Tuttle Toddlers, Mr. Connor Boyack. Connor, thank you, brother. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah. So um, uh, we talked a little bit uh, off the air about this. Um, my apologies. I have a, uh, a wicked cold right now. So normally I don't sound, I don't sound, I have no idea what I sound like because it's sort of like my nose is stuffed. My ears are stuffed. So, so much of my voice is just inside me. So um, you sound like James a- Earl Jones, a nice oh. deep voice. Fantastic. <laughs> Maybe well. Do you want to do that for the rest for the rest of the podcast? <laughs> Not really. Lower it, a few a few octaves. Um, so uh, I'm uh, so happy to have you on the podcast. We were trying to uh, work our schedules, and, and finally uh, we were able to uh, get them together. And I have a uh, sort of a personal connection to you because I have a, a good friend of mine uh, who was looking for, I guess, the perfect gift to give uh, to my son who's going to be turning two in a few, uh, in a few months. And, uh, he's a Liberty loving guy. Uh, and unfortunately he wasn't able to get my gun, um, get my gun, get my son a gun. <laughs> so, uh, he, he gave me the next best thing. And that is, uh, some of the books, the Tuttle toddlers. So nice. Here are two of them. I, I think we have more. They're kind of like all over the place, uh, in our house. So this one is the ABCs of Liberty. Uh, for those checking it out. And then the other one is uh, the ABCs of economics. Yep. Um, so um, at this point, I think this, these might be a little too advanced for my son. Um, I, I don't know where his, uh, if his, if his love for Liberty is there yet. He kind of, I don't know. He kind of has like this dependence thing, you know, he's not much <laughs> of a, he'll get over it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, children's books and, and how you got into, uh, into writing those. Yeah, I'd be happy to start there. It's, cool. uh, this was kind of something I stumbled into. I, I did not ever foresee my life taking this trajectory. I, a decade ago, so I, I was kind of a Ron Paul guy during the 2008, 2012 campaigns. I was helping out and, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and having a blast trying to change the world. And, and it's interesting, Ron, uh, at the conclusion of the 2012 campaign, he was asked by a lot of young people uh, what they should do next. What's the next step in the Ron Paul revolution? You know, what now? And he would tell them all the time. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I, this isn't like a central planning thing. You know, you don't follow me for that reason. I don't know what, what you should do. And uh, so I had an opportunity to talk to him, uh, interview him uh, about a year ago or so. And I reminded him of that. And I said, like, you know, Tell, tell me about that. It's been you know almost a decade since you said that. Like looking back on that, what do you think about that advice? He's like Connor. I'll use you as an example. 
He's like, I never would have thought of go start a state-based think tank, which is Libertas Institute, or go write kids uh, kids books to teach them freedom. He's like, I never would have thought of that. And yet, because I was an influence on you, you're now an influence on so many other people. And I, I just love that, right? Because those of us who were kind of fighting for freedom at, back in those days, we we recognized the influence of one person, right? For me, Dr. Paul was a massive intellectual influence. He is the reason I kind of got red-pilled and into the liberty movement and started reading so many other authors and getting exposed to a lot of these ideas. And, and so I'm a big believer in that. Well, then for me now to be in that position for other people is extremely humbling and gratifying because I know what that's like on the other side and I know what that uh, has been for me. So I had no vision of this though. Like I started Libertas since too bad a decade ago. It was like, hey, let's change laws at a, at a state and local level. Everyone's always focused on DC where you can basically get nothing done and it's all corrupt and awful. Like let's focus at a more local level. And we've changed a bunch of laws. But along the way, you know, I'm a dad of two kids. I wanted to talk to my kids about what the heck dad does all day. But how do you talk to a five-year-old about fighting eminent domain? <laughs> how do you talk to a six-year-old about socialism? How do you how do you communicate these ideas in a way where kids can understand? And I struggled. Um, I literally went on Amazon to find books that would help me. You know, there's books for potty training and the birds and the bees and anti-racist baby now and like all these like things other than, you know, these libertarian freedom, classical liberal ideas. And uh, so a buddy of mine, Elijah, who's also a dad, he and I were talking about maybe doing a kid's book. We had no vision that it would blossom into this or that the demand would be so strong. But clearly we tapped into a, a void in the market that so many of their parents have recognized and felt that they want help talking to their kids about these ideas, too. And, and man, I just love it. It's every day getting emails and social media posts from parents thanking us for helping them have these tremendous substantive conversations with their kids about like how the world really works and everything. And, and the value that they derive from that is it's like, I'm a drug addict now. Like I get my dopamine fix like on the regular and I can't not do it anymore. Uh, I'm very addicted to, to seeing the impact that it's happening, having with other people. And, and it's just an honor to be able to be a part of that for other people like Dr. Paul and others were for me. Yeah. I wonder, uh, you know, obviously, uh, Ron Paul's had a such a huge influence on on so many people, and um, I, uh, I I'm a I'm a libertarian and a comedian, and I say, you know, I I sort of have my on my resume, I've I've opened up for Dr. Ron Paul on a number of occasions. <laughs> so it's like, if you're a true libertarian, you will have been on a show on, on a showcase or something with uh, with with Dr. Ron Paul, and uh, I, I you know I sometimes wonder if anyone's ever done any research because he's a, you know, he was an OBGYN and he delivered, you know, countless babies. And I wonder, I wonder if there's something about the babies that, that Ron Paul delivered that they end up going, which way they end up going, you know, are they all, uh, are they all uh, libertarians? They but, better be. I know. Right. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, talk about the success that you've had. I mean, you've, you've, you really found a, uh, an audience because um, last time I checked your, uh, children's books, a, a series of sold over 2 million, right? Uh, three and a half million. Oh my now. God. Yeah. It's, it's three and a half million. This year we sold 1.7 million books just this year uh, in 2021 when we're recording this. So it's, it's taken off. We've got Glenn Beck advertising the books just yesterday at the time we're recording this, the Babylon Bee interviewed 
uh, Elon Musk for their podcast, and we sponsored that podcast. And wow. So it's uh, the word is getting out. And I mean, my goal is that I want Tuttle Twins to be a household name. I want everyone to know, you know, who the Tuttle Twins is. Maybe they won't agree. Maybe they're, you know, progressive or Marxist or whatever. But like, I want the Tuttle Twins to, to be as familiar to people as, you know, the Wheaties or I don't know what other, like, you know, Pokemon or whatever uh, brands are out there because I, I want penetration into the market. I want to reach and teach every kid. And 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 I can't do that slowly. I can't do that, you know, haphazardly. We are, we are being very intentional and aggressive with our marketing and partnerships trying to blow this thing up. We have a cartoon out now, you know, we're, we're trying to just add a lot of value um, because we want to change the world. And we recognize that the way to do that is to reach the rising generation and their parents, have these family discussions, have, you know, get people thinking about these ideas. It's a long-term investment. It's a long-term play, but it's so critical that we do that because we've been on defense for far too long. I'm sick of playing defense. Um, I, I don't love trying to slow down, you know, the, the death of this country and the, you know, the, the, the theft from, from all of us, you know, Oh yeah. Raise taxes less, less, uh, you know, a little more incremental than you were thinking. Like, no, like, like we got, we got to go in the offense. We got to tear some of this stuff away. We got to try and rebuild. And um, I know of no better way to do that than with the Teletons, because as a guy running a think tank, trying to talk to voters and adults and people have made up their minds by then, it's very hard to change a person's mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, as we know from, dictators in the past, it's comparatively very advantageous to try and reach the rising generation. We're not trying to do it like the dictators of the past by going around the parents and right. going into the schools and trying to, you know, propagandize them. We're trying to get at the parent, uh, the, the kids through their parents. We want whole families learning these ideas. And what we find so often, I'll, I'll end my point here, is that Oftentimes the parents share kind of this value of freedom or, you know, whatever, but they don't know what that means. They don't have any intellectual depth into these ideas. They've never read Hayek or Bastiat or, you know, whatever. And uh, so they feel inadequate talking to their kids about it. So they don't, which means those kids get propagandized in school and the media and their friends and TikTok and whatever. And pretty soon the kid is a little woke socialist Bernie Sanders lover. And the parents are like, where have we gone wrong? And it's like, well, you went wrong in never talking to your kids about these ideas. And it's because you felt inadequate about it. So the whole shtick with the Tuttle Twins is we want to support those parents so that they can feel adequate, so that they can feel like they have a language with which to kind of discuss these ideas. We break it down super simple. And, and what we find over and over and over again is parents, you know, reach out to us like, oh, my gosh, I learned more in these books than I ever learned in school. Like, I've never learned that stuff before. So we're trying to reach whole families together. That's how we change the world. And that's kind of the, the mission that we're on. Um, how would you describe the uh, the Tuttle twins like uh, as characters? Um, so they- Ethan and Emily are twins. Uh, they have a, a family um, and they go on a bunch of adventures where they, along the way, learn the ideas of freedom, entrepreneurship, property rights, sound money, you know, a golden rule, all the rest. And so as Ethan and Emily go learn these ideas, the young reader is kind of observing Ethan and Emily figuring it out and learning about it. So they're kind of a passive participant along the way to see how the characters learn those things. And then thereby the, you know, the reader is going to learn. Um, and so that, that's kind of the main, the main play with what we do. Yeah. For um, my one son, my oldest son is, uh, like I said, he's going to be two in a few months and then we have a, a two month old and um, you know, as, as new parents, we're, 
you know, trying to experiment with, you know, how do you teach your, your kids lessons, you know, about, uh, life and also how to, um, how to react and, uh, and, and be among others, you know, um, but do it in a way where you're, you're not, um, you're not being hypocrites, you know, like the idea. Uh, so like we're, we're doing a, 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 a peaceful parenting, um, yeah. thing, which I don't think a lot of people are very familiar with even, even hearing that. I think most people, most parents would hear peaceful parenting and, and think like, Oh yeah, I mean, we're, we're peaceful. Um, <laughs> uh, for us, at least, you know, peaceful parenting means we're not going to uh, use uh, corporal punishment uh, with our kids. We're not going to, yep. we're not going to hit our That's kids. That's what we've done. And, um, and it's, it's a thing where, you know, uh, uh, I remember, you know, growing up in in my family, I was one of five boys, and you would get the old like, "Don't hit your brother," accompanied by a smack, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wait, well, wait a minute, I I can't hit my brother, but you could hit me, right. um, you know. So trying to remain consistent with that, and I actually like, what was it? Oh, was it this morning? So my uh, my son, he's the one who gave me my cold. And I'm very upset with him about that. I don't think I'm ever going to get over that. Um, so he's been like coughing and stuff in the middle of the night. So I go into the room and, and I, uh, I stay with him and he grabbed my nose. And I, and this is a nose that, that right now it's sort of deformed with snot and all that. And it is super sensitive. He grabbed my nose so hard that it was a, I let out like an audible, like scream, you know, mm. um, and it was something where I needed to try to let him know what he did was not okay, but I'm not going to raise my hand to him because he's a he's a baby and he gra- and he grabbed my nose and you know to, to you know to be fair I do have a big hunker so I got <laughs> I got to understand that um, how do do any of those uh, uh, themes come into the, uh, the the literature you guys have put out I, I would say the closest we've done along these lines is the golden rule this idea of blowback. Uh, I mean, we got, you know, five-year-olds out there learning about blowback. You had, before it was Gerald they, Salente and, and uh, they Chalmers about, Johnson. Who, if we talk about, like, like yeah, yeah, it's, Ron Paul going to a Giuliani. And, and, oh, yeah. That's how a lot of that got started. And uh, that was a great uh, debate moment. The uh, So our book, you know, talks about the, the cycle of violence that uh, continues, to, you know, it, uh, back and forth was what leads to blowback. And then everyone feels like they are the aggrieved party. You know, I'm the victim here. And and so we get into like victimhood and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I, I, you know, that book is based off of Ron Paul, like each of our children's books is quote unquote based off of an original classic book. So the law by Bastia, I pencil, the creature from Jekyll Island, economics in one lesson, Atlas shrugged, you know, like we do all these books that we turn in, like we distill their core ideas, wrap them in a fun story, beautifully illustrated and boom, we got a book. So that's kind of the idea. And, uh, and so for, for the golden rule book, I chose Dr. Paul's book, a foreign policy of freedom. This is a book that's effectively a compilation of speeches that he's given on foreign policy in Congress. That book was hugely influential in my early days of, you know, learning a lot of this stuff. So basically we created a book where we wanted to talk about the non-aggression principle. And so we had to figure out how to talk about that in the language of, you know, young kids. And so the golden rule, which is frankly kind of a corollary of the non-aggression principle became the way that we would talk about it. This this positive thing. It's not just enough to to not aggress. It's 
you know, we build a better society by proactively treating people the way that we would like, you know, us to be treated rather than just like a, you know, leave me alone to do whatever I want. It's this more like out outward facing community building positive type of thing. And so of course that concept has a lot of implications. The golden rule is a profoundly uh, relevant and applicable concept. I mean, there's a reason why all major religions teach it, right? I think there's an economic corollary to it. There's a parenting corollary to it. There's a, certainly a government application and foreign policy. So that that topic, I would say, is, is best covered in that book. Um, but ultimately, what we're trying to do is empower parents to draw whatever connections they want. Some parents like you might say, oh, golden rule. Hey, son, this is why I try and treat you. How You know, I don't grab your nose. And so I expect you won't, you know, grab mine like that. Uh, but Again, we're not trying to propagandize the kids. We're trying to tee up these conversations where parents can take them in different directions and different kind of applications or circumstances. We just want to foster those conversations to happen at all. Yeah. You know, I, I think one one thing that's very underrated about Ron Paul is that he's kind of a cute guy. You know, he's not like he's uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe I'm, I'm alone here, but. Like he has such a, I don't know, he has such a great presence and uh, obviously he is a literal grandfather. There's, there's something to him that I think is, uh, is very attractive in that sense. Um, has, has, has Ron Paul ever done any like children's books of his own or, or spoken to kids or anything like that? Or maybe that's something you guys, uh, can get him to do? Well, because uh, the answer, short answer is no, he's not done any kids projects. He does have a project called Ron Paul homeschool, right? Uh, which is actually managed and written entirely by Gary North. It's uh, Ron kind of lent his name to it, but he's not materially involved. Um, but in our golden rule book, basing it as we did off of uh, Ron Paul's a foreign policy of freedom, we have a character in our book, which is chief Ron. So we turned Ron Paul. So the premise is they're at summer camp and you have these like warring factions. Uh, and, and, you know, so that is what leads to blowback and, and uh, the teaching opportunity. That teaching uh, opportunity is done in the book by chief Ron, who is kind of dressed in the big native American headdress. And they kind of do these things that a lot of summer camps do. I remember in boy Scouts, you know, you'd have a lot of that native Americana kind of tradition learning and culture stuff. And so chief Ron is the guy who teaches them about the golden rule and the non-aggression principle and everything. So he is Ron Paul. Uh, that is the character upon which that's based. And so it's fun. We, uh, you know, we had Ron sign, you know, the, people will take their copies of the golden rule to Ron when they see him at a conference or something and get him to to sign the book. Um, so I don't anticipate given his age at this point that he'll venture, you know, a, away from kind of what he's doing that I don't see him doing a, a kid's book or, uh, you know, many more books at this point. But uh, for me, it's fun to have kind of that little collaboration and be able to honor him in that way to, to, you know, introduce his ideas and, and, and his work to, you know, new generations too. Yeah. I just did, um, uh, my, uh, 23 and me, I got my DNA, uh, <laughs> analyzed and, uh, I, I found out that I have 4.8% indigenous American and I had no wow. idea. So it's more than I'm, Elizabeth Warren, way more than Elizabeth Warren. So I'm wondering, you know, should I lean into that? You know, like what can, you know, what does that do now for my identity? How can you milk the system? Yeah. Or maybe, you know, maybe I could be uh, a literal, you know, I could play uh, Chief Ron because. There you go. The live action Tuttle Twins. <laughs> exactly. If you guys are having any book signings or stuff. Plus, I, I need work. So, um, okay. so Connor, this is a little bit of a uh, of a job interview uh, <laughs> that, that I'm doing right I'll now. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, yeah, right on. Um, 
Um, and uh, so I think I got your the pronunciation of the institute wrong from the start. I said libertas, and it's libertas. We everyone says it a different way. There's like 30 pronunciations. So we say Libertas Institute. Libertas. Uh, the Americanized version very much is Libertas. Okay. Uh, Libertas or Libertas is uh, the the Roman goddess of liberty. So our Statue of Liberty, her name is Libertas. And so when I set up the institute a decade ago, I, I loved the kind of torch of of you know freedom and passing it on to one generation, lighting the way for others to follow beckoning all to kind of, you know, come and, and, you know, enjoy more prosperity and freedom. So I loved kind of that, that symbology and, and kind of the cultural meaning behind it all. Um, but then I talked to a kind of a linguist who I was like, how would they, you know, pronounce Libertas? He's like, well, there's kind of two schools of thought or kind of, you know, it depends. And, and it was Libertas or you think like an Italian, right? Libertas. Like right. Uh, you kind of got that angle. And then you got the, the, you know, American, Hick, you know, Libertas Institute. <laughs> so we don't really care. People pronounce it all kinds of ways. We just care that they know about the work that we're trying to do. And and you guys are based in, is it Utah? We are, yep. Okay. And uh, yeah, you were, you were talking about um, changing laws just on the, uh, on the local level, uh, as opposed to, you know, going the uh, Washington DC route. Uh, yep. Was there, you know, something like a, uh, a particular event that you were like, hey, this is where we need to focus our yep. attention. Yeah, I uh, I was on the campaign. So after um, first Ron Paul stuff, then I was like, all right, Constitution. Yeah, we got to, you know, change the government. And uh, so I got involved in a campaign here in Utah for uh, this gentleman. I didn't know him, ended up in his living room with five other people. And they're all like, this is our guy. He's amazing. Let's kind of poke him with questions and whatever. And I was very impressed. He's kind of constitutional attorney and knew the constitution in and out. And that was my frame of mind at the time. And, uh, and that's Mike Lee, who uh, we helped get the nomination uh, in a crowded field of challengers, all trying to take down the incumbent who was running for reelection. This was right after TARP, right? The bailouts and the Tea Party wave and all that kind of stuff. So in 2010, we got Mike Lee elected and I was still very much like, yeah, go change the federal government. And I was quickly disabused of that um, <laughs> when seeing all this energy I put into Mike. Love Mike. He's you know, done a lot of good things. But effectively, he gives speeches that you can watch on YouTube, right? Like it's very hard for a Mike Lee or for anyone, Ron Paul, right, to affect any change. Uh, the system is designed to perpetuate corruption uh, and, and not positive change. And so um, I quickly realized that that's not where I wanted to spend my scarce resource of time. And so then I jumped over to a group called the 10th Amendment Center, which is run by Michael Bolden, still operational. They're doing some good work. And the idea there was like working with states under the 10th Amendment, this idea of like any powers not delegated under the Constitution or, you know, reserved for the pe uh, states or the people. And uh, so the idea was let states rights, you know, let's empower the states. Let's have them fight Congress and nullify laws and whatever. So I, I lived, led the chapter in Utah for a while, but I felt like there were a lot of other things that needed to be worked on that fell outside of the 10th Amendment type of focus. And so I bounced around a little bit and that's ultimately when I was like, I'm going to start my own thing and, and, uh, and, you know, focus on all the, the things I think that deserve attention and where we can affect change. So that was in 2011 decade ago. Wow. Yeah. I remember, uh, 
Charles Cook, who writes for uh, National Review, I think he's a, he might be an editor over there. He's spoken quite a bit about how um, sort of local issues become national headlines, where what ends up happening is you have people, uh, you know, outside of states sort of uh, becoming way too interested and in actually wanting to affect change in communities that have nothing to do with them whatsoever. Um, and, you know, as, as fun as it might be to, you know, see what new laws or, or what's happening in Nevada or Maine or like that, it's like, well, ultimately I'm, I'm in New Jersey. So, you know, it could, I could, I could waste some time. Um, but, uh, what it comes down to, you know, what's actually going to you know affect me, I need to, I need to know what my local, uh, issues are. Um, what, what, what are some, you talked about, you know, being able to change laws and, what are some uh, some changes that that you're proud of? Well, uh, I mean, gosh, there's a bunch. I'll, I'll... or not proud of if yeah. anything that you want to get off your chest. Right? You know, the the most recently our big win was um, we legalized medical cannabis in Utah, which no one thought we'd be able to do in a culturally conservative state dominated by you know the the LDS Church and uh, very don't even anti- drink coffee. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone cannabis. So um, and I'm I'm an active uh, Mormon myself. I'm I'm very much part of the culture and the, and the church. But, you know, I don't believe that people should be put in jail for you know, using a substance, even though I may personally think that they shouldn't use that substance. Um, but we got medical cannabis legalized. Um, we've worked on, you know, civil asset forfeiture, fighting the ability of the government to, we've had some amazing reforms there. We've done a lot of criminal justice work. We have the nation's strongest data privacy laws that we got passed to restrict how government can snoop on you and, and uh, access your digital uh, data and everything. Um, we just passed the country's first regulatory sandbox, which is this idea where, innovative companies often run into old regulations, protectionist regulations that are designed to preserve the incumbent status quo. And, you know, I mean, Uber and Lyft is the prime example, right? Is illegal because of the taxis. Tesla, it was illegal to sell Teslas in many states, including Utah, because the laws were designed by the car dealers and their lobbyists to say, you have to go through a car dealership, mm. whereas Tesla was direct. To so you have all these new business models, these new innovative ideas, and they run up against these laws and regulations. So this new program we got passed in Utah, first of its kind in the country, says that if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing something different than what a law or regulation allows, you can apply to go into the sandbox for up to two years. And while you're in the sandbox, once you're approved, as long as they vet that you're not doing anything that's going to like jeopardize public safety or public health or whatever, if you're approved to go in the sandbox, you are shielded from that law or regulation while you're in the sandbox. So, you know, had the law not changed, Elon Musk could say like, hey, I want to go in the sandbox. And for two years, he could sell his cars directly to Utahns. He could prove to the regulators and elected officials that there's no problem with that. There's no harm. There's no lawsuits. People like it. People want it. And so then when he's getting ready to come out of the sandbox, the legislature can say like, okay, let's get the law changed because now people are going to revolt if, you know, what they have gotten used to for a year or two is now taken away from them. And, and we have data. The biggest problem with elected officials is they're being lobbied by both sides, but they don't have any data. The, the protectionists are going to be like, oh, but the sky will fall if people can buy cars directly. They need a reputable car dealership and salesman who knows blah, 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 right? So they fear monger. And so legislators like, oh, gosh, you know, I don't I don't want to 
allow for something that can harm anyone. And then you got the innovative people on the other side that are making their claims, but there's no data because it's new. And so a sandbox is basically a beta testing opportunity where under the supervision of regulators, these companies can, can have certain laws and regulations fully suspended, but then we gather data. Like, were there any lawsuits? Were there any harms? Were there any complaints? Are there actually any problems? And if not, let's friggin', you know, repeal the, that regulation and move it out of the way so these entrepreneurs can move forward. So this is a very pro-innovation way of approaching regulation. Rather than a hammer, it's a handshake to say like, yeah, we want to work with you, innovative companies. Come, come, you know, let's figure it out together. So Utah is now leading the way nationwide, and we're now helping states across the country uh, adopt this model as well so that innovative entrepreneurs don't, you know, hit up against a wall. They have an option to move forward. So those are the kinds of things that Libertas does, uh, really trying to actually move the needle, solve problems, help people, and uh, change the world along the way. Yeah. And and how is, uh, what impact is that having on, you know, uh, new people moving uh, to Utah? Um, I don't I, have any data on that. Um, I will say we have a big problem. States compete against one another for business, mm-hmm. right? You have these economic development agencies and they try and shower companies with incentives and tax breaks and bon- relocation bonuses. And so every state is basically out there trying to wine and dine companies to move to their state. It's corrupt. It's awkward. It's stupid. It's inefficient. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars uh, because oftentimes these companies decide to relocate somewhere for like, you know, uh, maybe low energy costs or there's local universities with a fresh you know supply of, of high caliber talent or it's a beautiful scenery. So they think that's going to be attractive to recruit people or what, like there's all these other reasons and then they're like, oh, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll take the tax benefits on top. But that's not the reason they move there. Well, when we started working on the sandbox thing, we were talking to our economic development people in Utah. And they're like, oh, this is so great. We now have something we can go out and talk to other businesses about other than just tax breaks and stuff. Right. We can say, like, if you're doing something innovative, you want to be in Utah because we have you know this amazing program that we're going to work alongside you and support you and whatever. And, uh, and so, you know, it's a way to recruit people. I'm not doing this to like get people to move to Utah or, or recruit people. I'm doing this because, because I want this to expand, frankly, nationwide. We need a federal sandbox. I mean, the federal regulations are the biggest problem and we need a way for uh, suspending not just state laws and regulations, but federal ones as well. So this is something that we want to expand and uh, have a, a big national impact on in the years ahead. I forget if it was, uh, I don't know if it was Idaho. Um, where it was either the governor or a, a mayor of one of the cities in Idaho was like, hey, Californians, stop moving here. Stay stay out. Um, but yeah, I guess effectively, you know, if you were able to, um, you know, change things federally where um, innovators could basically set up shop in any state that they, you know, they lived in, they felt comfortable. Well, then, you know, you don't necessarily have to worry about um, as many people moving with their feet. Yep. Yeah. Um, are you from uh, Utah originally? I've never been, never been to Utah. So I'm from San Diego. Uh, oh, okay. I grew up in in California my whole uh, childhood. I grew up in Santa Clara, San Jose. Moved to San Diego when I was eight. Spent my rest of my youth there. Came to Utah for college, and uh, and then got stuck. I developed roots, and and uh, I'm glad we've we've landed here. It's beautiful. If you like, you know, outdoor stuff, mountains, lakes, uh, you know 
all kinds of adventure, skiing and snowboarding. Certainly, I mean, there's it's just it's a playground of nature that's just phenomenal, and uh, so we love it. Yeah. Well, when it when it comes to um, the government, you know, at any time people think about Utah, they they obviously think about uh, Mormons and, and and all that. Is there a like a strong connection between uh, Mormons and government, and you know how things are are, are run, or is that just kind of uh, just happens to be uh, where you guys live? I can't answer this question without a little history. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the Mormons came to Utah, the early pioneers, because they basically seceded from the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were horribly persecuted. And a lot of the, like, they bounced around to different locales as they were trying to basically just live in peace. And the neighbors would often get pissed off because as the Mormons grew, there's a lot of immigration from European countries. They were doing a lot of missionary work. Mm-hmm. And so their numbers were rapidly growing. And so the locals got concerned because that presented political uh, implications. Oh, you know, if the Mormons vote as a block, they're going to get a Mormon mayor or a Mormon, you know, governor or whatever. And so the the locals back in kind of wild west times, you know, would would persecute them, shoot them, tar and feather them, burn their homes. Like it was extremely problematic. The leader of the church, Joseph Smith, and his brother uh, were shot and killed by a mob. So you got all these people who want religious freedom. They're not experiencing it at all. And they don't know what to do because here's this country that was predicated on, you know, constitutionally protected freedoms, the First Amendment, et cetera, and it's not working for them. So they decide to leave. They, they basically emigrate to what is now Utah. Uh, it was uh, claimed, I guess you might say, by Mexico at the time. And, um, and so they moved west, a horribly arduous, you know, pioneer trek out west. And they, again, were kind of, seeking religious freedom. So they set up uh, this, um, I don't know what you call it. They, they just started, you know, building and growing here in Utah and uh, later became an official territory after the Mexican-American War and then kind of the land had changed ownership. So which, which, side, terri- which side did they fight on? Uh, in that? Uh, so they fought on the side of the United States. Uh, there was what's called a Mormon battalion. So being from San Diego, there's a little museum in San Diego for the Mormon battalion because they were... Uh, the United States military came to the Mormons and begged them for help because they needed numbers. And so all these men left in the middle of this pioneer trek and they went further south down towards the what is currently the border. And uh, they didn't end up fighting. By the time they arrived there, things had kind of ended. And so then they went home. Um, but yeah, they I mean, their heart was with the United States. They weren't like anti-United States. They viewed the United, they viewed Congress and the president and all the elected officials as failures in upholding constitutional order and in, in failing to provide justice in failing to hold their abusers accountable. So it's not that they became anti-America or anti-constitution. If anything, it was the opposite. They were very staunchly pro-constitution and they just felt that no one was actually upholding it. So they came out west, and as the United States expanded west, its territories and later states, Utah wanted statehood. A lot of the people here wanted the benefits of, you know, the camaraderie with their people and and whatever. But there was big conflict with polygamy at the time. Uh, The Republican Party had been founded in part to try and eradicate polygamy. A lot of the early Mormons, not all of them, but a bunch of them were practicing polygamy. And so that was a massively controversial thing in the late 1800s. 
Um, and it was just, very interesting. Just so, every, just so everybody knows, when you said you only have two kids, I figured you only have one wife. So uh -huh. I, was, I, I, was, I was doing the math. Okay, good. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Utah eventually became a state, uh, not without its controversy, uh, significant amount of controversy. But, but here's the answer to your question. Utahns, the, the heritage of Utah, the pioneer ancestry, the early culture was very, not anti-government, but very much live in and let live. In other words, mind your own business. I actually have over here on my wall um, here all for those because you're you're sharing this video with some folks, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So for the people watching this on video, I'm going to show you. I have here on my wall. I commissioned this this artwork right here, and you can see it says uh, Mormon Creed. Mind your own business. Uh, saints or you know, Latter Day Saints, the Mormons. Saints will observe this. All others ought to. Mind your own business. That was the motto of the early Mormons. It was very much like we don't want the we we left the government. We don't want them snooping in our business. We don't want them telling us how to live. We just want religious freedom and to do what we want. And and that was the ethos. That was the culture. And so Utah, even though there's been a lot of new people coming into Utah and many generations since, there is still this kind of undercurrent, if you will, of 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 heritage and sentiment that is very libertarian. It's very live and let live. It's mind your own business. And so we kind of tap into that when possible to kind of remind people that's what made Utah unique, right? Is this kind of past where they they went, literally went to war against the government. The, the troops came and tried to crush uh, the, the territorial government at one point. Like it was it was controversial. And so it shows the abuse of power. It shows that protecting law on paper is inadequate. You need people who are actually going to enforce things that way. Just because the Constitution says something doesn't mean anything. I mean, look at the General Welfare Clause or look at the Tenth Amendment, right? Every other power not delegated, like pff, no one, you know, the Commerce Clause, the, the courts have just eradicated that. Like, so, so paper, uh, who was it? I think it was Madison. Might have been Madison. Uh, I don't remember. I think it was Madison. No, it was Lysander Spooner who called the Constitution a parchment barrier. I think it was Spooner. I, I might be getting that wrong. Someone he, he, he has, uh, Spooner has a great quote. I'm, I'm not going to get it uh, right, but it's sort of it's like um, uh, if the man, if the if the Constitution can't protect itself from being uh, aggressed against or something like that, then it's not. It's not worth it, you know. Right? Actually, it might be worth looking up. Uh, but, but yeah, so kind of, kind of similar vein, right? It's like uh, if this is a parchment barrier, if if it's not adequately going to protect us, then we need to figure out better ways to protect our rights. Because simply saying, you know, support the Constitution, like that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. So, so that's that's Utah. Utah is very unique in that heritage, and and our people, my people, right? I remind them of of that past, that this is what government is and does. And it's not unique to the 1800s. It exists today. And for the very reasons that the early Mormons were so skeptical of power and frustrated with corruption, um, we should share that sentiment today because we see it in spades. Yeah. So I found the, uh, the Spooner quote, um, quote, but whether the constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain that it has either authorized such a government as we have had or has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. 
mm. uh, which is a pretty uh, pretty strong line. Uh, you know, something to point out too. I mean, um, Mormonism is a relatively young religion, so you know there is so much like uh, when it comes to newspaper clippings and and articles about your your faith. You know, whereas uh, um, uh, religions that are much older, you know, you're dealing with uh, archaeology versus you know con- <laughs> you know contemporary text and you know, um, and all that. Um, yeah. How does that? How does that? Uh, I, I don't know. But how does that work into? Uh, I might. I might say it's the same thing about like old European countries with their aristocratic, you know, long-term whatever families in power, et cetera, versus America, where you can read all the founding documents and read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers and you know the letters between John Adams and his wife, and and so it's very it's a very American religion in that sense, right? Because it's kind of very intertwined with those early days, and so both my faith and our country uh, share that in that we can kind of read the source documents, if you will, and kind of be very keenly aware of why it started and why it's important, and it doesn't get so diluted down in this long-standing historical whatever full of you know, myth and, and legend and, uh, you know, uh, oral history that, you know, that telephone game where it kind of changes every, mm-hmm. every time someone's talking, um, you can go read the, the original documents. And I think that's something very powerful, uh, because it makes it more potent, I think, where, when you can kind of go straight to the source. Um, uh, so, uh, I, I guess part of your faith is, uh, doing missionary work. Did you, uh, did you do uh, missionary work? And in, in, I did. Where? I was a missionary in Honduras in 2002 and three. My wife served a mission in Sweden uh, around the same time. Um, how did so, yeah, you get, know, how'd you get stuck with Honduras? How that? How oh, that stuck, happened? man. I, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel very fortunate. I, I lived and worked and served in tiny little pueblos. The, the, the most poorest, like, I mean, Honduras at various times has been ranked the, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and now it's got all kinds of problems, with the war on drugs and cartel well, and everything That, that was part of, uh, yeah, part of what I was asking. I don't know how things were at that time, but um, all I hear about are body counts and it's just really. Yeah, the, I mean, the cartels know that the, the gringo Mormons are poor themselves <laughs> okay. and that the church is never going to negotiate or pay like it's not like you can you know kidnap a gringo and make a bunch of money so yeah yeah how uh, much is connor uh is connor worth uh right right so so we were never bothered by by the gangs um you know they kind of knew what we were about and i mean in decades past it was always like oh it's the cia you know like these are the cia guys or whatever uh but no like it, it wasn't a problem the cartel stuff wasn't as bad two decades ago although there were plenty of gangs and issues Um, but for me, it was a transformational experience because here I am working among the poorest of the poor who are happy and grateful and, and, you know, for what they have, what little they have. And it was very interesting for me coming from a middle-class typical American family where I never questioned, you know, having a a meal, you know, at the table, uh, each day. And, um, for someone who's, you know, 20 years old and kind of going through your own growth phase, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, and, uh, one I wish everyone could have, whether it's, you know, just humanitarian service or whatever, you know, I, for my kids, like I have been to Africa, I, I want to take my kids to uh, this place in Africa where I went and just go do service and, and meet people around the world to, um, 
you know, I, I remember to connect and to better understand ourselves and to appreciate what we have as problematic as all the government crap is, you know, to appreciate the the freedoms we do have. And uh, I don't know, it's a very kind of eye-opening experience that that I, I love and, and want for others too. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you were there, you were, you were proselytizing. Um, did you uh, get converts? Did you get the, like, um, how do you, how do you judge if, you know, say, you know, your missionary work was, was a success? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, there were converts, I baptized a number of people. Um, you know, you can look at it from a number standpoint, like, Hey, look, I baptized this many people and was it worth it or whatever? Uh, for me, it's, it's, there's a lot of intangibles in mm-hmm. terms of defining success. I mean, for me, personal growth wise, it was absolutely a success relationships I have to this day with people, uh, down there, learning Spanish, uh, you know, really figuring out for myself what I believe. Do I believe what I'm out there preaching and, and really kind of putting that to the test? Um, having my beliefs challenged by other people who believe differently, learning how to build relationships with people who I disagree with or who disagree with me or whatever. Like there were so many amazing things for me and just um Helping, I mean, lots of service projects, you know, building a house for someone who's, you know, hurricanes swept their home away. Like uh, it was, it was very much a success. And uh, even if I baptize, like, I don't think my wife baptized anyone in Sweden and some of the Scandinavian countries. It's, you know, very secular, very difficult for any Christian missionary. Yeah. Yeah. And so success is different, right? And, and um, you measure it in a different way. But for me, it's like with the Tuttle twins, like some, so doing Tuttle Twins through a nonprofit, we raise a lot of money for it. Um, you know, we fundraise for a lot of the projects that we do to get them off the ground and market them even more. And so when you talk to donors, a lot of the donors, especially foundations and more, more professional, you know, philanthropists, they want measurements. They want to know what are your outputs going to be and what are your outcomes and how do you measure success? Kind of like what you're asking. And what I say with the Tuttle Twins, I guess, would be the same answer as, you know, being a missionary. I, I consider myself a missionary for freedom now. Um, and that is, like, I envision myself as friggin' Johnny Appleseed in the countryside, just throwing seeds out, right? I don't know what's going to grow. I don't know what's, you know, going to stick. But I know that we've got to plant a lot of seeds. I, 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 you know, it keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is not marketing the Tuttle Twins hard enough and reaching enough people where I'm going to miss the next Ron Paul. Like who's the next, just to use him as an example, right? But who's the next like change agent that's going to make our world a better place that unless I reach him, he's not going to come into our movement and be on the, the right path or whatever, or maybe he will be in, but it'll be delayed 30 years, you know, or whatever. But like, for me, it's it's finding those diamonds in the rough and knowing that the more seeds I plant, the more I reach out. I don't know every family's dynamic and you know what they consider success, but I know that my responsibility is to spread these seeds far and wide, and then let other people go. You know, fertilize them and harvest them and and uh, hope for a better future. Yeah, I was definitely seeing a connection there between your missionary work and uh, the work that you're doing now. Uh, when it comes to you know planting those seeds, um, you know you often hear about uh, kids rebelling against their parents. So, you know, if, if your parents are conservative, you, your kid, it might end up, you know, uh, uh, being a, you know, liberal or progressive or, you know, uh, you know, rebelling. Um, have you found, is that, is that necessarily the case? Um, because I'm trying to look back at, 
at, at the way that I was uh, growing up. Because my my parents were you know lifelong Democrats, but my father is also an immigrant and a business owner. You know, mm-hmm. so it's sort of he sees uh, you know he's a blue collar uh, butcher. Um, you know, so he saw you know sort of that you know working class um, element uh, as opposed you know. Um, so you know, I, I'm just I'm I'm wondering like maybe that Ron Paul you know is out there but I don't know which family he necessarily has to be brought up by, you know? Right. Well, that's, that's a very interesting question because, you know, it, it's this idea that like, do, can you reach kids directly or do you go through the parents? So, you know, I said earlier that we're not trying to propagandize kids and go around the parents and, you know, go in the classroom, but it's also that like, there's some parents who are wrong, who are sure. ignorant, who are distracted, busy, not going to do this. And so it's like, if I want to reach as many kids as possible, I kind of have to be open to appropriate strategies to reach more kids whose parents aren't buying our books. So getting these books into schools, you know, we just launched a Tuttle Twins cartoon a few months ago, an animated series. We got five episodes out now. They're hilarious and amazing. Where can we see them? Uh, uh, TuttleTwinsTV.com cool. is where you can. So the, the books are all at TuttleTwins.com. And the series is at TuttleTwinsTV.com. So the idea is like Saturday morning cartoon, right? That like kids are talking to their friends and, oh, have you seen the Tuttle Twins? No, I haven't. You know, like my kids watch all kinds of YouTube channels that I've never heard of. They get it from their friends. And so getting into that and and percolating that out, like, again, yeah, like I want to reach as many people as possible. So I can't constrain myself based just off of like-minded parents buying the books for their kids. I need to think bigger than that. We need to reach more people than that. And so I don't want to do it in an inappropriate way. I'm not trying to hide what we're doing, but uh, but we have to be very creative about how to reach you know the rising generation in a very aggressive and and substantive way if we're going to make a dent in in improving the future. And and also do it in a way where I mean you're you know you, you uh, talked about uh, um, you know economics in one lesson and uh, the uh, bibliography of, of of Ron Paul. It's like taking those ideas, uh, you know. Uh, uh, working on it so that it could work for a younger audience, but also be entertaining too, you know, so you're yep. sort of uh, juggling all, all of those things. Um, and um, I, I just got to say, I'm, I'm definitely going to be checking out the cartoon because my, uh, my oldest son is absolutely uh, addicted to Thomas, the tank engine. <laughs> um, and I don't know about you guys out there, but uh, in the opening credits, we're, we're told that Thomas is the cheeky one. But he's not the cheeky one. He's not cheeky at all. He's kind of um, he's kind of a little bitch. And um, so hopefully the uh, Tuttle twins can uh, can fill a void in uh, in my family's uh, nice uh, watching. Um, Connor, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. And um, uh, where can people find your stuff? Yeah, so TuttleTwins.com is the place to go. We got a pretty sweet offer going right now on the homepage. If you don't have the books, it's a great time uh, to pick them up. We provide workbooks as well. Like you're going to get an awesome bundle. Uh, you can find them on Amazon as well, but you get a way better deal at TuttleTwins.com. Great. And hopefully the next time everybody hears me, my cold will be lifted. Thank you so much for watching and or listening to my podcast. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. And another way to support me is by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blbckbrew.com. Use promo code Lou for free shipping.
And if you're into CBD products, please check out palomaverdecbd.com. Use promo code LOU for 25% off purchases over $75. All right. Bye.